Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. I'm Mark. <laughs> and I'm Bethan and we are a true crime podcast. Welcome back everybody. You love to wind me up with that, don't you? I know, yes. Yeah, so, so easily wound up. Um, yeah, welcome back everybody and welcome to our season six finale. So this is the last episode of season six. We've then got a week off and we are back with our season seven premiere on the 5th of January and that'll be over to you, Bethan. So... It Watch will. This space. I'm going to find something really exciting. Can you find something not depressing? Because yeah, does that sound like a plan? We'll start off a yeah. little bit happier than we're going to finish this week. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's um not a happy one for the Christmas season, but we do wish all of our listeners a merry Christmas. Yeah. So oh, thank you for my that's thank nice. you for my Christmas card, by the way. My pleasure. Did you like it? It's very well decorated. A little wasn't bit it? cheap. It was made by my daughter's own hands. Yeah, I. I guessed as much so yeah so i knew that you'd be like hmm does this really need to be put on my beautiful display of fancy christmas cards from john lewis and m s no it was it was um it was honestly appreciated <laughs> i'm not sending any cards this year so uh so you know i can't really say an awful lot can i um so hmm. yeah ha- well Anyway, Merry Christmas, Mark. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of our listeners, as you've said. Um, I just thought it would be a good opportunity because people love these long introductions. We've had so much feedback that people love our 10 minute introductions. So I thought I'd carry on. And as we're at the end of the year and at the end of season six, I thought we could reflect back on the year briefly. And um, I've come up with some stats. So including oh amazing i do love a stat who doesn't including this episode we will have released 48 episodes this year we'll have spoken about 250,000 words across those episodes and apart and then that's probably doubled from all this stuttering and stammering and restarting an episode oh my god yeah it's probably half a million words to be fair uh half but that's amazing half of those don't make it to the final cut but yeah and we've produced 40 hours of content um which depressingly i've calculated it has taken us about a thousand hours to uh, put together so that's a fun fact for us um 48 episodes that's amazing in this year yeah it's mad isn't it so much fun and we are nearing three million downloads now since we started so that is amazing that is i mean thank you so much to all of you guys that are listening because obviously without people listening we wouldn't still be doing this and it's it's just really humbling, isn't it? But also, wow, three million downloads. I know, it's weird. I, just, I can't get my head around it. So, yeah, thank you. We're incredibly grateful to um, everybody that listens to the show and continues to listen and continues to support us. Um, and also, we're incredibly grateful to our growing army of Patreon supporters. Uh, we've grown uh, that community massively over the course of the last 12 months. So thank you to all of you. And also thanks to our most recent Patreon supporters. So that's Gemma Grady. Caroline Schuler, Caroline Pidsley, and the following two people who have signed up annually, and that's Jessica Linross and Lucy Wilde. Thank you to all of you. It's massively appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. And yeah, Merry Christmas patrons as well as listeners. Oh my gosh, I'm going to say Merry Christmas to so many people today, Mark. It's well, very exciting. And this is coming out on Christmas Eve, which is exciting, isn't it? It is coming out on Christmas Eve. As a little Christmas treat for everybody. <laughs> or not, yeah. So um, let's get cracking then because we can't put it off forever. 
This week we are revisiting a subject that we first covered back in season two in an episode Bethan put together entitled An Abuse of Power, Modern Slavery in the UK. And for me, that was a a hugely informative episode and I still think about it to this day. You did an amazing job with it and I learnt so much. Thank you. It was a, a really interesting episode to research and write and present and like you, I really learned a lot from it and um, we sort of had the four different cases. Generally, it was people, a foreign national that was being taken advantage of, but other sometimes it's um, people in their own country, but they're being taken advantage of, usually because they're vulnerable in some way, shape or form. And it did really highlight a lot of things for us, didn't it? We always talk about um, looking out for those signs if we ever go get our car washed we we do sort of take a little bit of time to to talk to those people who are washing the car look at them a bit closer check their footwear I mean that's my main one is yeah how how are they dressed and and what are they wearing just to try and hopefully protect somebody if you can spot something you can then call and if they are legit and they're above board, not a problem. But if they're being taken advantage of, you might have saved their life potentially. Yeah, and saved dozens, hundreds, thousands of other people um, that could have been taken advantage of by the same gangs, the same criminal gangs. So, mm. yeah, it really stayed with me. And um, I, I won't go through all of the kind of hints and tips that you mentioned in that episode. And you also talked a lot about different agencies and organisations that members of the public could raise any concerns to. So I won't do that. But if um, if this kind of has piqued your interest and you want to learn a little bit more, then by all means, go back to that episode in season two or get onto Google and, and have a look. But it's um, it, it was so interesting. Go listen again, because then we'll have three million and one downloads. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, genuinely, it, it is really it's it's one of those things where it's kind of everyone's business. Yeah. I feel like to try and help each other out and protect each other. So, yeah. Oh, what a nice blast from the past, though, because it's not like you forget your episodes, but sometimes it's nice to be reminded of them. So, yeah, this week we are visiting the subject of modern slavery in the UK once again. And it's a truly shocking and frustrating case, actually. I think it's a kind of story that will make you want to jump in and rescue the person at the heart of it. But of course, that's not possible. This is also a listener recommended case. So a huge thanks to Stuart for getting in touch with this one. Um, if anybody does have a case that they would love to see us cover, then by all means do get in touch with us in all of the usual ways. And, uh, we, we always look at them and, and cover them wherever we can. Um, sometimes it's not possible, uh, but, but we do love having recommendations. So keep them coming. So before we delve into this case, let's set some context. When we think of slavery, our minds tend to wander backwards in time. We probably envision old ships moving human cargo between the African continent and various faraway lands. We may also think of Abraham Lincoln, who put his political career and personal legacy on the line in order to end slavery in America once and for all. Or we may just immediately reassure ourselves that the problem of slavery is merely an ugly stain on our history and something that thankfully no longer occurs. It's especially easy for us in the UK to pretend that slavery wasn't a huge part of our history and to pretend that our ancestors were all really good people. But of course we are starting to realise more and more that that just simply isn't true. 
The truth is that the UK has a long and violent history as a key player in the global slave trade, and there are countless documented examples of our ancestors committing acts of abduction, exploitation and extreme violence against foreign slaves. In 1807, after thriving for more than 250 years, the abhorrently unethical yet insanely lucrative British slave trade was abolished by members of Parliament, and it henceforth became illegal to buy and sell slaves, although people who owned them already could still legally hang on to them, which drives me insane. It's mad, isn't it? It's such a stupid loophole and get-out clause there. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it would have made it really difficult for any authorities to really monitor um, because people, I guess, would just say, well, I had this slave before the law was changed. So, Yeah. Um, Thankfully, the law was changed again. So several years later, in 1833, Parliament made history by finally abolishing slavery in all of its ugly, violent and morally bankrupted forms thus making the slave trade in the entire British Empire nothing more than a shameful memory. Unfortunately though, as is often the case, the problem didn't go away completely, and it does still exist, albeit mainly in the shadows. Modern slavery in the UK can manifest itself in many forms, from forced sexual exploitation and domestic servitude behind closed doors, to more visible forms which manage to hide themselves in plain sight. So the things we mentioned earlier, like car washes, but also forced labour on farms, forced labour on construction sites or privately owned shops. There's just a few examples for you there. And I think that was one of the things that was quite shocking, wasn't it, is that Um, you might think that these are legitimate businesses and things are going on behind closed doors that you just don't even know about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the disturbing thing. We just take so much for granted and we turn up to get our car washed or we buy strawberries in the summer and we don't really think about the story behind them. So um, yeah, it absolutely could be that people are enslaved working on a farm picking your strawberries that then you're um, enjoying as you watch Wimbledon. You know, it's... um... Do you know what though, genuinely... Um, us talking about the fact that you were going to do this case when we were talking about it before um, and I was in a supermarket I'm not going to say it because I don't want to sound like I'm actually saying that they enslave people whoever sells their mm-hmm. carrots but do you know how much a kilogram of carrots was in this supermarket I could not believe it I bet it was obscenely low like 20p 29p 19p oh, yeah yeah how awful is that because I've grown carrots they aren't easy to. I get that, obviously, on a larger scale in a farming industry, in de- like industry, you're going to be able to do a lot more than I can do in my garden. But I just couldn't believe it. I was like, for the amount of effort to grow, etc., and dig up those carrots, nineteen p for a kilogram. Mental, and, and, isn't it? And just the weight of them and transporting them is going to cost money. But um, yeah, it could mad. it could be it's a loss leader, and it could just be that they're massively ripping farms off, which is a whole other crime that we could probably cover at some point. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, forced labour is actually the most common form of slavery in the UK. Wow. And it's described as its own enterprise and it's fuelled by a drive for cheap products and services, as you've alluded to there. And and that demand comes from some people who just have very little regard to the story that sits behind those products or services. More often than not, however, slavery is as simple as taking full advantage of an at-risk, vulnerable adult and cruelly reducing them into nothing more than a captive slave. And there are a disturbing number of cases of this kind of slavery that exist in Britain and beyond. 
According to antislavery.org, a charity that aims to rescue victims of modern slavery in the UK, the number of people identified as victims of modern slavery has been rising year on year. And this is a shocking figure, with over 10,000 people referred to the authorities in 2019 in the UK. Wow. I know. I mean, that's wonderful that they were referred to the authorities, as in, like, I'm guessing these are people that were helped. Yeah. That's mental because obviously that's not all of them actually, that's not everybody, that's only the people who were helped. Yeah, how many more people are there that are, are suffering and hidden behind the scenes? Yeah, it's um, it's a really shocking problem and that's why I wanted to say, you know, if you think that this isn't a problem in, in a civilised society like, like here, then you're absolutely wrong, it, it happens all the time. So we're going to be telling you about a brutal, extreme and deeply upsetting example of a vulnerable adult who was mercilessly exploited, abused, tortured and eventually murdered by a family of heartless bastards who the victim actually saw as his friends. Not only that, we'll outline the repeated examples of institutional failure by the police officers and welfare agency workers who recognised the signs of slavery and had perfectly good opportunities to save this man, but did nothing. How frustrating. I think we all know of some cases in the media at the moment that will kind of spring to mind when you think you're in a position where you're supposed to be safeguarding people, you're supposed to be looking out for people, you're supposed to raise you know, raise the alarm if you think that something's going on. This isn't just people in general. This is people whose jobs are supposed to be protecting somebody. Very, very frustrating. This case is going to make me so angry, I'm sure. I know, I think it's going to get worse, for sure. So on a sunny day in May 2009, two members of the British public were enjoying a stroll around what is known as the Blue Lagoon, an old flooded clay pit that now serves as a scenic private fishing lake in Bedfordshire. As the two walkers skirted around the shore of the lake, they made an alarming discovery. Partially submerged in the shallow water was a wheelbarrow lying on its side, and a few feet from this, also only partially submerged, was a large bundle of industrial sacking which had been crudely bound together with strong duct tape. On closer inspection, these two members of the public noticed a terrible smell emanating from this bundle, and they decided to alert the police. When local police arrived and investigated further, they discovered the decapitated and dismembered remains of what was clearly a murder victim. The victim, whose head was nowhere to be found, was at first thought to be a male in his early to mid-twenties. As investigators unpacked the grisly package, they were shocked to discover strong indicators that the victim had apparently been tortured to death. The incomplete remains were covered in bruises and they appeared to have been burned and severely beaten as well. The torso also appeared to have several bite marks on it which may or may not have been caused by a dog and there were also air gun pellets lodged into the torso as well. Oh my god, can you imagine? You, you've you already got this gruesome discovery and then it just every time you get some information back from um, the pathologist you're hearing more and more disturbing features of what's happened to this person. And you you just know this isn't a like normal case now. No. And to think a dog may have been trained to attack this individual, which we'll come on to later, is, is just such a disturbing fact in, in this whole story. So it took some time, but subsequent deep searches of the lake did help to recover the victim's decapitated head. And it was this discovery that helped detectives to identify the victim as 26-year-old Michael Gilbert 
a name that was more than familiar to Bedfordshire police, but not just as an offender, also as a victim of something much more complex and sinister. To say that Michael Gilbert had led a troubled life would be an enormous understatement. Born in Luton in Bedfordshire in 1982, it would be fair to say that he never stood much of a chance at having a normal childhood. Michael grew up in a volatile and neglectful home, exposed to severe domestic violence and substance misuse. Consequently, he spent significant lengths of his early and mid-childhood in various care homes. Described as a vulnerable child with significant learning difficulties, Michael was someone who was always very easily led. He was said to be a quiet boy who lacked confidence, and someone who had nobody to guide him through what was a really troubled world for him. In 1993, under highly dubious circumstances, Michael's sister contacted Bedfordshire police and accused him of sexually assaulting her. Michael vehemently denied this allegation and it's believed that no official criminal charges for sexual assault were ever brought against him, but this single allegation would prove to have a devastating impact on him in later life. Michael attended Halliard High School and due to his learning difficulties, his lack of academic ability and his obvious vulnerabilities, he was the lowest hanging fruit for school bullies and he was tormented mercilessly for years on end by them. They beat him, they threw objects at him, they made him the fall guy for their own offences and they even occasionally pinned him down and wrote derogatory words and phrases on his clothes and skin. God, I don't I don't know what it is, but you've, it feels to me like you've saved the worst till last there. And I know that perhaps sounds really silly, but that really hits me. Like, it, it's it's really, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but the, the derogatory phrases, I just imagine him then getting home and trying to scrub off pen that is on his own skin or trying to hide that they've written on his clothes from whoever does his laundry for him and stuff. I just imagine, like... It must feel really shameful. And then even in private, you've got that reminder that they said that about you and they, you might start to believe it, especially if you're this um, vulnerable like he was. I don't know. Is that weird that I find that's almost like the worst part for me? No, I I, I completely feel exactly the same. Out of all of the the um, assaults that, that they um, inflicted upon him, it is definitely the writing of derogatory phrases on his clothes and particularly his skin that is really bothersome to me as well because I think it's so intimate, somebody writing on your skin. And like you say, you, you sort of um, picture Michael frantically trying to scrub those words off of his own body. And I think, yeah, it, just, it must do something to the victim in that case. And you must almost, yeah, believe those words that have been written on you and it's just so undignified isn't it yeah it's horrible and michael being the person that he was never lifted a finger in order to defend himself he just sat there and took it even at such a young age he seemed completely resigned to being treated like shit to him it was all he'd ever known and sadly this was his normal Michael's turbulent childhood, which was already a living nightmare for him on so many fronts, only intensified further when, at the age of just 13, he was diagnosed with male breast cancer and he had to endure the pain and trauma of a mastectomy, which just breaks my heart, you know, at the age of 13. Yeah. After Michael recovered from his operation and left hospital, rather than going into a warm family home to 
recover further, he ended up in the Brambles Children's Home in Luton. And this is where he first met his soon-to-be best friend, James Watt, as well as Watt's long-term girlfriend, Natasha Oldfield. And just for context, this was in 1998. So this soon-to-be best friend, James Watt, who was already well-known to the police at this point, was described as a troublemaker and a control freak by those who knew him. True to his vulnerable nature, Michael clung to James and readily joined him in his life of petty crime and delinquent behaviour. In return, James took full advantage of Michael's obvious mental incapacities and would often make Michael the fall guy for his crimes, so he would coerce and manipulate Michael into confessing for crimes that he'd committed, and Michael would then be punished for James's crimes, basically. Oh, that's so horrible. Oh, bless him. By 2000, with no thanks to James Watt, Michael had racked up several criminal convictions and cautions and he'd also spent time in a young offenders institution and had minor stints in prison at this point. And all of that's not going to help him to particularly, you know, go the right path or anything. This is, it's all just stacking up against him. Everything in his life seems like it's just been... Just another heap of shit on top of this poor guy. And even even the time in prison, even though he was kind of institutionalised from growing up in a care home, um, going into a young, um, a young offender's institution or a prison, um, he would have been like the prison bitch. He was always going to be the guy, the fall guy, the guy that people bullied. So that would have probably ramped up a level in prison compared to school, I would have thought. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Going back a couple of years, uh, when Michael eventually left secondary school, he did actually make a few fruitless attempts to fit in with the rest of society and to lead a normal life, but he just couldn't make it work, which is completely understandable. So instead, he drifted around Luton, consistently failing to hold down any job or otherwise navigate a way forward for himself. By 2002, Michael was on the verge of full-blown homelessness, and his future was looking seriously bleak at this point. At least that was until his good friend James Watt stepped up and offered to take him in. Oh, that sounds freaking ominous. And oh it, my God. blimey, it really is. So before we get into the real crux of, of it all, let's hear from the first and only show sponsor of today's episode, and wow, what a sponsor they are. Beautiful jewellery company again. You know we love them, and if you haven't checked them out yet, you need to go look at them because then you'll love them too. They are a small family-run business. They were established in 2011 by a husband and wife duo, and they sell truly gorgeous pieces of jewellery. With offerings in all aspects of jewellery design, as well as jewellery parts, loose stones, repairs and bespoke one-off design pieces, they specialise in high-quality British-made jewellery, and it's all from a UK business. Yeah, they work with a variety of metals such as yellow, white gold and rose gold, also silver and platinum. So there really is something for everyone. Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited offer a wide range of products that can be made with the customer's specifications to the customer's own design in your own choice of gemstones and diamonds. And I'm sure I've said before about my one of my best friends was getting married and I had a bespoke um, bracelet made for her with their help, which was really, really wonderful. 
Um, so it's great and it's so simple to do as well. And if your hints went unnoticed this Christmas and you didn't have sparkles or a pearl necklace in your stocking from Santa, then why not treat yourself by buying yourself something from Beautiful Jewellery Company? Uh, just head to their website. It's beautifuljewelrycompany.co.uk. Or perhaps you've got some Christmas money to splash out with, you can head on over and take a look. And we also have a special offer for listeners of Seeing Red, an amazing timeless discount code of RED10, so the word RED, R-E-D, and the number 10, one zero, which is active on the site for a discount of 10% off your entire basket. There's no minimum order amounts, there's you can do whatever, 10% off, and that's um, a timeless discount code as well as well. And the great thing is that all orders are available with worldwide shipping and the website's ever-changing and new products are added daily. They've got so many products on there and it's really easy to navigate around the website to search for what you want as well because I'm desperate for a new St Christopher necklace, which I really need because I broke my last one. I'm sure I've seen a St Christopher on the website actually. Oh, okay. Worth a look. And the search feature is really, really good. I put in which ring size I was, so then I only had on my screen rings that I knew that if I wanted to buy that one I could get it in my size so have a look on the search feature it'd be really good fantastic so head over to beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk and use code red10 for 10% off your entire order so before the break I mentioned that Michael was on the verge of full-blown homelessness and his future was looking seriously bleak at least until good friend James Watt showed up and offered to take him in but this would actually be the beginning of the end for Michael. So at this time, when James showed up and offered a home for Michael, James was actually living with five members of his own family in Yeovil Road in Luton, in a rundown semi in a depraved part of town that was plagued by crime and graffiti. Sounds like Bristol. Oh, it sounds I awful. couldn't resist. Yeah. Sounds, like, sounds like your house. <laughs> totally, yeah. Uh, the family were described by other occupants in this street as the neighbours from hell, and they were well known to the local council and also to the police for their antisocial behaviour. Jennifer Smith Dennis, James's mother, was the matriarch of the family. The other family members of the household consisted of James's father, Antonio, as well as James's two brothers, Richard and Robert. James's girlfriend, Natasha Oldfield, and Richard's girlfriend, Nicola Roberts, also basically lived in the house most of the time. So I think I counted this. And there's like seven adults living in this small semi, plus then Michael comes to live with them. So there's there's eight adults living under this one roof. It kind of makes me think of knowing like that these people aren't so lovely. Reminds me of like, do you remember that old show Shameless yeah. back in the day? I imagine them, when I think of what they look like, I imagine them like the characters from Shameless. (laughs) I really don't want to, yeah, I I mean, you're probably right. I I don't, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? They they would have been Jeremy Kyle type people is probably the best way that I could, I could describe how I envisage (laughs) them. Jeremy Kyle. Yeah. We're, we're, we're um, really referencing some on point references here, aren't we? (laughs) Jeremy Kyle and Shameless. If people are listening outside of the UK, they're literally going to be thinking, what the fuck are you on about? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Tough. James took Michael into that home and introduced him to his family. And at first, uh, Michael was warmly welcomed into their home and invited to live with them uh, until he was back up on his feet. And that was, to be fair, that was on the condition that he pay matriarch of the family, Jennifer, for his keep, which I think is fair, to be fair. Don't you? Oh, yeah, completely. It's just... And 
that's not exactly unheard of that you would be expected to pay rent no, or no. at least pay something towards the fact that you're staying in someone's home. No, yeah. absolutely fine. So Michael was initially very grateful for the offer and for a while things ran smoothly in the house. However, everything began to crumble horribly when an upsetting chapter from Michael's past came back to haunt him. By pure coincidence, Patricia Gilbert, Michael's younger sister, who had years ago accused him of sexually assaulting her, started dating one of the Watt brothers. And this, of course, led to disturbing revelations about Michael and Patricia's previous conflicts and her accusations against him. And this all um, came to light and it ultimately really became the catalyst for the horrific campaign of abuse that would come next. Well, yeah, because I assume that she's not gone back on her word or anything, even though nothing came of it and it wasn't proven in court or anything. She's obviously going to still keep going, um, sticking to her side of the story. So, yeah, nobody's going to hear and I can't imagine Michael's going to actually stand up for himself either. No. So that's all that this family would know is what her side of the story was. Yeah. So when Patricia, um, Michael's sister, told the Watt family about the sexual assault allegations, the family's attitudes towards Michael turned extremely sour. Almost immediately, Michael's living conditions within the Watt family home became what could only be described as a living hell. So rather than kick him out on the street, the Watt family decided it would benefit them more to keep Michael at the house and exploit his vulnerabilities for their own benefit. So from this day onwards, Michael was treated as a slave or skivvy as he became known to the family from this point onwards. Well, they they called they him called that him as skivvy. His name. Yeah, they called him skivvy. Oh God. He was never permitted to leave the house and he was forced morning and night under extreme duress to clean, cook, wash up and do all of the household chores as other members of the family just lounged around, relentlessly degrading and mocking him as he went about his business. Michael would sleep on the floor in one of the bedrooms, but he had no mattress, no blanket, no pillows, nothing. Oh my God, that's awful. So even after a whole day of being someone's slave, you haven't even got somewhere to restfully put your head. That's oh. And it's all about controlling and breaking mm-hmm. him, isn't it, really? So that he becomes it is, yeah. he then becomes more beholden to them. To add to this living hell, the Watt family exploited Michael's vulnerable state of mind even further by consistently and brutally berating him at any given opportunity. And Michael would also, of course, be severely beaten and cruelly shouted at and screamed at for even minor transgressions, such as not washing himself, not cleaning the house to the Watt family's satisfaction, get this, not running the bath for family members to the correct temperature which just drives me insane Uh. that they've got him running their fucking baths um, or for not preparing Uh. food in the right way. You know, the list was endless, really. And for all of these stupid reasons and countless others, Michael was usually repeatedly slapped around the head or face before being reduced to tears by a barrage of vile verbal abuse. So it was very much twofold. It was very physical and mental. This is like the school bullying yeah but but, but a, on a worse scale much harder yeah. degree yeah yeah that they're, they're behaving like horrible school bullies and yet they're all adults who shouldn't like they should know a lot better not that teenage bullies shouldn't know a lot better but 
oh, what the hell? This is a, this is a family of adults. Yeah. What is wrong with these people? That's the thing. They are all grown-ass adults. But I think Michael's bullying at school had perhaps conditioned him towards this. And, of course, he's extremely vulnerable anyway. He's got learning difficulties. So, um, so yeah, he, he was easy prey for them. And nasty people like this are like lions. They can, like, smell that weakness a mile off. Yeah. Because they're going to benefit from it. So it's in their interests, as far as they're concerned, to be on high alert for people that they can exploit and abuse. Michael was in receipt of benefits due to his mental incapacities, but every last penny of that money would be forcibly taken from him and divided amongst the Watt family. Consequently, Michael never had any money of his own. When not slaving away around the house, he was kept upstairs, he was given meagre food rations, and he was also only given old or dirty clothes to wear. The distressing level of physical violence that Michael endured can only be described as horrific. And I think this is potentially where I'm going to really struggle to listen when you this gets go through bad. from even just how the pathologists and the police were able to identify all this marks on his body. Yeah, And I, I know this case slightly and I know of a couple of the things mm. that happened to him and they just have stayed with me. So yeah, it, maybe a bit of a warning to our listeners actually for if you perhaps can't listen to the idea of the torture. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah, I think this is timely. Uh, to to issue a warning and we we always say we don't ever do that lightly but it's um it's Mm. just really depressing what what's coming up um michael often walked around the house partially clothed with severe injuries such as deep infected cuts to his face arms and back and on several occasions he was seen with black eyes and serious bruising to his face and head so i'm guessing if he was in the garden for example or if the family did permit him to go out maybe to collect his benefit money etc um and as a result of the assaults on many occasions michael could be heard by neighbors screaming in pain at his tormentors um as they jumped up and down on his body they would jump up and down on oh him oh my god but also and we never know what would be in this situation but someone's hearing this did they alert the police that this was going on at that moment well, i feel like if i heard that in the house next door or nearby Surely you'd be ringing the police. Well, I I think some people did because the police. This is the the savage part of all of this. The police knew uh, in a, a roundabout way what was going on, and didn't really do anything. Ugh. So so people must have people had seen Michael. They'd seen him with bruises on his face. They'd heard him screaming. They had. They must have reported that to the authorities, but mm. no action was taken. And I will come on to that wow. in a in a lot more detail. So severe and savage in nature were the beatings that sometimes Michael struggled to walk or even stand up straight, and this bit's awful. Internal injuries that he sustained often caused him to lose control of his bowels because they were jumping up and down on him. When his heartless captors became bored and needed to be entertained, Michael had his trousers pulled down and his private parts sprayed with hairspray before his pubic hair was set on fire. Committing acts of severe cruelty on Michael eventually became the Watt family's go-to whenever they needed a good laugh. They often filmed their torture sessions on their mobile phones in order to watch it again later, where they would all gather round oh and laugh God. at it. And it oh, I know. But also, really fucking stupid because now you've got evidence on your phone that you've done this. 
like not even just doing it is is horrific enough but you're that stupid that you're then filming as well but this is how fucking stupid they were yeah and a diary kept by james's girlfriend natasha oldfield included plans for a game show where contestants would pay five pounds to slap michael and 25 pounds to headbutt him yeah because that's gonna happen what an absolute freak and again you're keeping a diary year twice yeah and it's at this point, actually, I'll keep this in, but um, me and Bethan were talking about this case and it was uh, insanely familiar to me and I got really paranoid that we'd already covered it. And I still feel there's a tiny part of me that feels we've covered this already, but I'm sure we haven't, have we? We haven't, but Paul um, Paul at the True Crime Enthusiast did cover this did he? case, that so it's must probably be that you've it. heard it on his show. That must be it. Um, but also it it has been in the media a lot and at the time it was so it's also probably that you've heard it on another show but also that you were well aware of it in the time it's one of those cases that really sticks with you even if it is in the back of your mind and you try and put some of these thoughts to the back of your mind you don't want to think about it when it starts coming back up again um yeah Mm. then, then you'll kind of remember it yeah um so yeah it must have been from paul's true crime enthusiast uh, that i've i've heard it so michael was regularly assaulted as i've said and on one occasion he was nearly killed when he was assaulted so badly that the back of his head and neck resembled a sponge which is just i mm. can't quite describe it in any other way but i'm just going to leave that there The family dog was also encouraged to attack Michael as a means of entertainment for the rest of the family, which I alluded to um, a while ago, um, which is just appalling. And several times Michael would have to be taken to the hospital due to his injuries. However, probably due to extreme fear of violent reprisals, he never said a word about the unspeakable abuse that he was being subjected to. Even when being treated for a deep stab wound, he managed to convince the nurses that he'd been attacked in an attempted street robbery. That's how um, under the under their control he was. This could have been his opportunity, but actually, they you know they had so much control over him. And I think the times when they had had no choice but to take him to hospital. Um, and I, I remember this in the Victoria Climbier episode that I did. Um, it, it, it was almost that they, they just had no choice. Michael was going to die and that would present them with a real problem at that point um, if Michael died. And also they enjoyed abusing him and they had a slave around the house to do everything. So they, they didn't want him to die and that's why they took him to hospital because he was more useful to them at that point when he was alive than when he was dead. Um, and the dog part as well with the the dog being trained to attack him. I'm sure this is the case, and I, I might be completely wrong, but I think it is. So it, I will double check after we finish recording, and then if I'm wrong, I'll get you to just take this out of the episode. But I think this guy as well, they basically made him goad like a a bearded dragon or some sort of one of those vicious lizard type things that people sometimes keep as pets. And they made him goad it until it attacked him. I think that does ring a bell for me. Um, Isn't that awful? I didn't see that, uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I can imagine. I can imagine that they would have. I done feel that. like it's this case. I bet it is. And it was because I know I when I grow growing up, growing up, I had a friend who her brother had one, and we were always told like, don't go near it. It could wipe you with its tail, and it would be an accident, or it could attack you. Blah blah. But they they made him goad it so that it would attack him. Mm. Like what? Oh, 
it's just awful. It's really depraved, isn't it? This for me is almost, it's almost right up there with, uh, the, I think it was the New Cross Double Murder, an episode I did where those two French students in London were tortured and murdered. Yeah, it, their, their living room resembled an abattoir by the time their murderer had finished with them. And, and that was hours and hours of prolonged, cruel, very cruel torture, depraved torture. And that's what we're, we're seeing here, really. At one point, Michael did make an attempt to escape from the house and flee the evils that the Watt family were inflicting on him, and he was almost successful. After escaping the family's clutches, he kept a low profile by sleeping rough on the streets of Luton, before eventually heading north to Blackburn in the hope of starting a new life there. However, James Watt, a control freak, don't forget, by nature, was furious that Michael had escaped the family and he went all out to bring him back. Oh my god, I hate that. You just feel like if only he'd managed to escape. And this would have taken so much courage for Michael to make this escape and, and it was fruitless. Using Michael's national insurance number and several other identity details in order to impersonate him, James successfully traced his location and personally drove up to Blackburn with his brothers to recapture him. They found Michael, kidnapped him from outside his local job centre in broad daylight and then drove him straight back to Luton. Oh my god, that is very similar to one of the cases that I covered in that episode back really? in season two. Um, going back to recapture that person and you just think they would have felt like they were finally free, you know, finally they're getting somewhere. Yeah, and he'd gone to... And then you see those people drive around the corner and you just, his heart would oh have my sunk god. and... Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. Once Michael had been forced back into the Watt family home, the abuse escalated dramatically. As punishment for his perceived disloyalty, Michael's torture intensified to more depraved and life-threatening extremes, and it was only a matter of time for him now. To prevent him from running away again, Michael was quite literally stripped of all of his clothing, and he had to endure the indignity of living and working in that house completely naked. The standard of beatings he'd previously endured were replaced by more savage methods, such as being repeatedly hit with a baseball bat or a plank of wood that was studded with rusty old nails. He was also slashed at with kitchen knives, he was shot in the ankles and the lower back with a high-powered air gun, um, and he would have his hands handcuffed together in a locked room at night time and then not be released until the morning. So he was being kept almost in his own version of a cage really and it's like before he'd managed to escape because at least he had a little bit of freedom now they're not going to let him have any choice of chance of freedom at all and he must have really he must have berated himself for that failed escape attempt because yeah but where else was he going to get money from because he had no other option completely understand but he must have just thought god i wish i hadn't tried to escape in the first place because it wouldn't maybe it wouldn't have escalated to this extent Yeah, oh, it's just heartbreaking. One time, for one of Michael's minor transgressions, he was forced to stand barefoot in boiling water. And on this occasion, his injuries were so severe that he was unable to walk properly or put shoes or socks on for over a month. Oh my, well, of of course not, jeez. His captors were as heartless as they were relentless. He was repeatedly told he would be beaten and stabbed to death if he ever told the police about this abuse or if he tried to escape again. 
The endless cycle of torture and abuse continued, unchallenged and invisible behind closed doors for more than five years, and it certainly looked like nobody was going to come to the rescue for Michael. By this time, five years in, Michael's soul had been well and truly broken to such an extent that his captors actually felt comfortable enough to allow him out of the house for short stints of time to go and collect his benefit money and presumably to ease any suspicion people may have had about his whereabouts. So they would let him out and they would let him out on his own, but he wouldn't run away. That's how manipulated he was by them at this point. Despite having ample opportunity to escape on these trips, as I've said, Michael simply didn't dare do so, as he firmly believed the Watt family would make good on their threats and murder him if he tried again. Well, yeah, I mean, you would think that, wouldn't you? Yeah. They're doing everything else, literally up to the point of actually killing him. But in 2007, Michael was presented with another opportunity to escape. He was arrested by police in Luton Town Centre on an allegation of rape and taken into custody. A DNA sample cleared him of any wrongdoing, but the police had been quietly examining Michael during this time, during his time in custody, and they already knew about the alleged abduction, the torture, the beatings that he was being subjected to um, by this sadistic family. So, you know, this, this obviously makes your blood boil because they did have a pretty good idea of what had been going on and they'd not done anything, anything about it. So during his time in custody, uh, after he'd been arrested wrongfully for, for this sort of rape charge, no charges were brought, he hadn't done anything wrong. But he's in custody and the police have time with him and they sat him down in a private room and they actually offered him protection and a way out of the Watt family home forever. However, as he sat there in front of the detectives, shaking and petrified, he found that he simply couldn't find the courage to take them up on their offer and he refused to press charges, telling them that it would make it worse for me in the long run. Astonishingly, as the police begged Michael to let them help him, James Watt brazenly walked into the police station and waited patiently in reception to take Michael home. Oh my god, that makes me want to break down in tears for this guy. So close, so close. Oh my god, it's awful. And like, I'd want to, if I was one of those police officers, I'd want to be like, just come live with me, like, you can't do that, but you just want to be like, do you want to just live here forever and we'll lock the door? Like, I don't know, there's nothing you can do. And it does frustrate me, though, that he says, I don't want to press charges. And unfortunately, that is that. I, th- I think it, it's quite frustrating, isn't I, yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And I don't know all the intricacies, but I think it would have been different if the police had evidence, even if Michael saying, I don't want to press charges. Um, they would go ahead and, and do that without uh, his allegations mm. or non-allegations because he's not saying anything, he's not admitting what's happening. Um, or equally, if Michael had actually said, yeah, it's true, I'm, I'm being beaten by them, uh, even if they had no evidence, they would at least then investigate and they'd have mm-hmm. uh, due cause to go round to the house and seize phones and they would, would have seen evidence. But yeah. but yeah, I guess they just had no evidence and, and they've not got this guy making any allegations. So it's and a difficult And they are trying, one. you know, yeah. they're sitting him down and saying, we're going to give you this option, we can protect you, we'll try. Yeah. And actually, there there was um, a detective who uh, really did take pity on Michael. And, and this detective persuaded Michael that, you know, I'll drive you to a train station. And this detective gave him a ticket to Cambridge so that he could get away um, from the Watt family. 
So, oh, so wow. somebody did mm-hmm. take pity on him and and sort of said, "Look, you know, we won't we won't get you to press charges and and kind of do this formally, but please let me just help you kind of run away again." And yeah, they paid for the ticket. And actually, Michael did get on that train and he did make it to Cambridge. Um, and once there, he spent time living on the streets and trying to find work to support himself. But unfortunately, he didn't get very far. His outreach worker in Cambridge, Ross Watkins, remembered him as a pleasant but childlike young man. She would later say he was quite innocent trying to impress people, he was naive streetwise, scared of dealing with authority, and he used to lend out lots of his benefit money, which is a real sign of somebody uh, who is vulnerable being taken advantage of. So that pattern of behaviour that he he was being subjected Mm -hmm. to his whole life was continuing. Somewhat predictably, history repeated itself. Of course it did. And a now furious James Watt again successfully tracked down Michael and forced him into the boot of his car before driving him back to hell. Oh, God. I know. And this time the abduction was witnessed by Michael's friend, a guy called Daryl Everest, who said that Michael looked petrified. Daryl Everest did file a missing persons report online and also reported what he'd witnessed to the police. But Michael's last chance to survive his hellish existence in Luton and to finally lead a normal life elsewhere had failed. It was the beginning of the end now for Michael Gilbert. Oh, I feel and imagine being his friend, knowing what had happened to him before, and then and the friends put his hand up and tried to help. Yeah, nothing's happened. Yeah. Um. So as before, uh, Michael was driven back to the Watt family home, and his cycle of sadistic torture continued with even more intensity, believe it or not, and violence than ever before. This time around, though, the punishments for escape would prove too much for Michael to bear. In 2009, at the age of 26, Michael's life of torment, misery and pain came to a violent end when he was savagely beaten to death by James Watt and his girlfriend Natasha Oldfield. His body was dismembered and he was decapitated and his various body parts were wrapped in industrial sacking and then of course distributed around the Blue Lagoon Lake in Bedfordshire, only to be discovered a month later by those two members of the public that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And that's heartbreaking enough as well, the fact that it was a month later that his remains were found. I imagine there was not really any particular looking for him at any point. I don't imagine any neighbours had really reported him missing or anything like that by this point. I was just going to say, yeah, sadly, nobody would have missed him, unfortunately. There was no family Mm -hmm. that loved him that that would have realised that he'd gone missing. It's incredibly sad. The pathologist found a stab wound that had cut an artery, as well as several serious internal injuries. And um, his range of injuries, Michael's range of injuries, was so extensive that the pathologist was unable to determine an exact cause of death, which I'm sure we've come across before, in particularly violent deaths. Body parts recovered from the Blue Lagoon revealed saw-like cuts that indicated a hacksaw had been used to dismember him. By the time all of Michael's body parts had been discovered, they were in an advanced state of decomposition, which made assessment of internal organs and bruise marks really difficult. There was evidence that soft tissue had been cut with a sharp object, like a knife, but a saw, meat cleaver or hatchet had been used to cut through bone and to sever Michael's head. Three stab wounds were found on his torso, and internal injuries to the stomach and intestine were theorised to have been caused by people jumping and stomping up and down on him, which we knew happened. 
The aorta artery had been pierced and this would have been quite capable of causing death due to the rapid internal bleeding that would have ensued and this is the most likely cause of Michael's death but as mentioned earlier the exact cause of death can never be established. Knowing Michael's situation all too well it didn't take much detective work to identify the prime suspects in the murder investigation that followed and all occupants uh, within that Watt family home were immediately arrested and charged with Michael's murder. So that included James Watt's girlfriend Natasha Oldfield, James himself, Richard Watts, his girlfriend Nicola Roberts and then the mum and the dad as well. The trial for the murder of Michael Gilbert commenced in February 2010 and the overwhelming evidence of the Watt family's appalling cruelty, exploitation and murder of Michael ensured that it wasn't a very long trial. The jury were shown several gruesome videos of the family's depravity and violence towards Michael as well as a number of highly incriminating text messages in which the family openly bragged to each other about the horrors that they had in store for Michael. In April 2010, James Watt and his girlfriend Natasha Oldfield were found guilty of murder and they were sentenced to prison terms of 36 years and 18 years respectively. Nicola Roberts, the girlfriend of James's brother Richard, was also found guilty of murder and she received 15 years. Richard Watt, Robert Watt and the mother of the Watt brothers, Jennifer Smith Dennis, uh, they were all found guilty of familial homicide and perverting the course of justice. Richard received six years in prison, Robert received eight years, and that bitch mother received ten years. The dad, Antonio, was eventually acquitted of familial homicide and perverting the course of justice. So in case you're wondering, familial homicide is the act of unintentionally causing death through severe and deliberate domestic violence, and this can also incriminate individuals who don't physically perpetrate the violence themselves, but they might have full knowledge of what's happening and they've failed to act in the best interests of the victim, or they've failed to prevent that death, so they might have watched, um, they might not have partaken, they might not have goaded um, the attackers, but they've watched and allowed it to happen. I'm glad that that is a law and it's interesting to have that full description. So thank you for kind of, because as you said, in case you're wondering, I was actually wondering, so that's really interesting. But I'm glad that it, I mean, I'm glad that they're that stupid that they texted each other and took videos and stuff. I'm glad that they were that dumb, that they've managed to just seal their own fates. It interests, I find it interesting that there wasn't enough evidence about the father, but I guess that's just a lack of evidence because he's clearly guilty of that if he lived in the same house. However, I suppose they just, whether or not the jury could convict him on that fully. Yeah, I mean, there's maybe there's a bit more to it, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll leave you, the listener, to make up your own mind on that one. Recognising the exceptional brutality of the killing and the circumstances prior to it, the judge did consider giving James Watt a whole life sentence, but he didn't go ahead with it because he thought that James would have regarded it as a badge of honour. I mean, I would have said go ahead with it anyway. Um, That badge of honour vibe would have only lasted, you know, a couple of weeks and then he's behind bars for the rest of his natural life. Mm. Nevertheless, in his closing remarks, the judge described the case as a grotesque story and said Michael Gilbert had died a cruel, lonely and violent death. The judge also told the family, In all my years, both on the bench and at the bar, I have only ever dealt with a handful of cases where the behaviour can properly be described as depraved, and you can be rightly added to this list. How in a civilised society this behaviour was allowed to continue is a mystery. Clearly having a dig at those 
agencies and authorities and people surrounding yeah, I this. Mean, good for that judge because to have to sit there and preside over a case like this must be awful. Oh god, and the jury. Um, so yeah, good to make that comment. James Watt, who was described as dangerous, cruel, vindictive, spiteful and heartless, showed zero remorse or emotion as he was sentenced and he was even heard to say cheers to the judge as he was sent down. Absolute dick. In May 2011, Richard Watt had his sentence reduced to four years on appeal. And this is interesting. It was later revealed that this was his reward for cooperating fully with the police investigation. So he helped the police and the CPS to convict the other members of his family. And he also helped the police locate um, missing parts of Michael's body. And I think that's so interesting. I feel like you shouldn't get a reward for that personally. I don't think you should be rewarded for it. But it's standard though, isn't it? understand that yeah and if he hadn't have done that there could have been a lot less answers and a lot less um justice and a lot less closure as well if if all of michael's remains weren't recovered um what i find interesting though is that in these kind of families you very rarely get anybody grassing and richard has grassed his whole family up and he's had a reduced sentence that's so true not all of his family are going to prison for that long most of them will be out now and what what the fuck has he done he's gonna have to have whether he went into witness protection i don't know he's gonna need it gonna have needed something like that because he can never show his face in Luton again and risk bumping into his family because they will kill him probably in my opinion James Watt, Natasha Oldfield and Nicola Roberts made appeals against their sentences too, but they were all swiftly rejected, thank God. After the trial, questions were, of course, raised about the police and the welfare agency's lack of action and intervention in Michael's case, especially when it came to light that the police had once had both Michael Gilbert and James Watt in the same police station at the same time, which theoretically meant they could have saved Michael's life at that point. Um, when that officer bought him that ticket to Cambridge and they actually could have arrested James Watt on the same day. But, uh, you know, that's easier said than done. There's not really much evidence and you've got the victim who is absolutely refusing to cooperate. So I don't hold that against the police too much, but there were other failings. Detective Chief Inspector John Humphreys, however, said the kidnap report made by Michael's friend Daryl Everest had been investigated and he said he, Michael, was offered assistance. We helped him get back to Cambridge where he was happy and he didn't require any further assistance. The detective also added, hindsight is a wonderful thing. I don't think anyone could have predicted where we are today and I have a bit of an issue with that. I do too because... The kidnap report made by his friend was after they'd already had him in the police station and they'd got him off to Cambridge and then that happened. So I think you could have predicted that actually. And they, they knew, they knew a lot of what was going on or they had a you know, pretty good understanding of what was probably going on. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give them a bad rap, but they are at fault here and there in this case. And I'll come on to it very briefly as we kind of bring the episode to a close. But not long after um, these people were sent down, in 2011, the Luton Safeguarding Vulnerable Adults Board published a serious case review, which found that the response by the police, social workers and medical professionals involved in Michael's case was inadequate and far below the expected standards. And the report was damning. It made eight primary recommendations for immediate improvement, 
and it concluded that Michael's childhood led to him being literally and emotionally abandoned without consistent or predictable guidance. And I think that's that's sort of alluding to the authorities and agencies that were involved in helping to bring Michael up, that they had absolutely failed him and that basically these care homes just weren't fit for purpose. We could go on a whole other discussion about oh that, my God, we? Yeah. Because, and I won't, but things like, um, I, I don't know, the Lost Boys episode that, that I did a while ago, where young boys, lots of them in children's homes, in the care system, uh, really slipping through the net and being abused and murdered by a paedophile ring that was, you know, massively prevalent in the 80s and 90s in the whole country, but certainly around London that lots of high profile people were in. But anyway, and what one that I can't name, but we've named, I named before and I think I had to cut it out. Um, but somebody, somebody who's very famous. Who I disagree with you because I will not have a I bad know, word said I against know, but him. it's true. He he is a renowned. Uh, I just can't uniform, believe it. So. Let's leave that one. I couldn't don't, either. You'll ruin anyway. Christmas. Right. So, <laughs> the same year in 2011, a report was also published by the Independent Police Complaints Commission, which found that three police investigations involving Michael were flawed. And the report revealed how police were first alerted to Michael after a violent assault in 2002, and they were later told by Michael himself that he'd been abducted by the Watt family, and that was in 2007 and then again in 2008. So, Michael must have told them a little bit of information but he didn't elaborate that much and yeah there were loads of blunders and the police officers somehow they took down the wrong phone number for Michael at one point and some of the officers even speculated that he was making um, anything up that he was actually volunteering so when he did feel brave enough to actually admit to some of the abuse a lot of the time he wasn't believed and they thought that maybe he was inventing some of his injuries because The thing is, when he found himself uh, before police officers, it was pretty obvious that something had gone on because he would have had lots of bruises and infected cuts and stuff. So it would have been difficult for him to lie his way out of that. He wasn't um, intelligent. Uh, so it would have been difficult for him to come up with excuses. So, so he did volunteer some information, but, but unfortunately, as I said, on numerous occasions, that wasn't believed. Following the report by the Luton Board, Trevor Holden, Chief Executive of Luton Borough Council, said the council and its partners are determined to learn the lessons from this serious case review. Let's hope that they fucking have. So if you've managed to get this far, um, well done. Uh, But you will have no doubt wondered why on earth did Michael stay with the Watt family for as long as he did? We talked a little bit about some of the reasons, but I wanted to elaborate on that. So criminal psychologists now attribute Michael's depressing history of violent abuse as the reason why he was apparently unwilling or unable to pull himself away and escape the clutches of the Watt family. However, it can pretty much be summed up in two parts. One reason is that he was simply terrified of James Watt. He knew the family would find him if he tried to escape and he knew that the punishments for escaping were unbearable. But secondly, as most psychologists believe, it's taken me three times to say that sentence, Michael, this is so disturbing, that they really believe that Michael needed to feel a sense of belonging despite all of the abuse. And isn't that just awful? And it's actually demonstrated very sadly um, in the next piece that I'll, I'll sort of explain. So um, 
basically, after watching James dish out a particularly nasty beating on Michael, James's brother Richard asked Michael why he put up with this. And between pained sobs, Michael responded by saying, I love you lot. You are my family. Oh my God, that is just horrific that this person has so little actual love in his life and family that this is what he feels like family would be and it's the only thing he he knows and and feels like he needs and oh my god that makes you have brought me close to tears too many times in this episode for it to be a christmas one like this is happy christmas that is heartbreaking you are my family it's awful not i know it's really depressing it's really depressing mm-hmm. um During Michael's funeral, his estranged mother, Rosalie White, wrote a poem in his honour. And I think we do have to accept that we we don't know the background of Rosalie. And she she may have had a very, very troubled um, background herself that meant it wasn't possible for her to care for Michael. So um, I I don't know. And there's there's absolutely no judgment here. And she has lost a son, even though um, she wasn't as involved in his life as as lots of mums would be in their son's lives. But she wrote a poem in his honour which said, He bid no one a last farewell. He raised his hand to no one. His spirit flew before we knew that from us had gone. I often sit and think of you and think of how you died. To think you could not say goodbye before you closed your eyes. I mean, if you're not broken now... That's going to break you. So that that is um, that brings an end to today's episode. And uh, you know, it's it's just as I said, so frustrating. There were lots of opportunities where Michael could have been saved, and I really felt like I wanted to dive in and um, pick him up and run away with him and put him somewhere safe. But it's obviously not possible. The only thing to kind of take away is we're not forgetting him by room reminding ourselves of what he went through and hopefully learning from all that um but remembering his name and remembering his story that he's not forgotten and that something can come of this you know these reviews have taken place and hopefully some systematic changes will be made and are being made and have been made so it's all you can take from it isn't it really yeah, I, I absolutely accept that there will have been some positive changes off the back of this, which is something. And I really hope that we're all a little more, um, have our eyes open a little bit more to, and our ears open to, to look out for this kind of stuff and, and to raise concerns. Um, and hopefully the police will respond properly. So, um, thank you for listening. Uh, happy Christmas. Apologies. This wasn't a happy episode, but it's never going to be, is it? We're a true crime podcast. But Merry Christmas, um, everybody, because forget- it is Christmas yeah, Eve Merry if you're Christmas. listening to this on the day it's released, which means you need to go to bed early because Santa will be visiting. Yeah. And don't try not to have nightmares. Um, so yeah, don't forget to check out the show sponsor, beautifuljewelrycompany.co.uk. Use code RED10 for 10% off your entire order. That's a lifetime discount code. It doesn't expire. And um, if you want to support us on Patreon, please do take a couple of minutes to sign up there. There's there's a lot of content for you uh, as a reward for your support on Patreon. Yeah, we've got and it makes a huge difference. Blog posts and all sorts over there now. We've got Jim, Jim, two part Jimmy Savile over there. But yeah, it, it really does. It it means so much to us if you're able to and we're really really grateful i think it encourages us to continue so um yeah we're so grateful for our our existing 
uh, supporters, but if you would like to join them, just head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And until next time on the 5th of January, we will bid you a farewell and yeah, have a fantastic break over, over Christmas. Yeah, happy new year as well. Let's hope that next year brings everybody lots more happiness and joy in their lives. Are you expecting anything in Santa's sack, oh. Bethan? Oh dear! <laughs> I take that got, as a no. I've got to send you a picture of. Um, we've got a book for the for the girls. A little like it's a kids' book, but it says like, "That's not my Santa because his sack is too rough." And every time I read it, I laugh. And my other half, every single time, is like, "Stop it! You were a mother. You were talking. To, you you can't have a dirty <laughs> mind like that." And I'm like, "Well, it's just so." You just read it and it's just, oh dear. <laughs> the, the, most, the most disturbing part of that is if uh, your eldest then starts kind of reading it in front of anyone else and starts laughing at that exactly. herself. Exactly. Um, she starts laughing and then that... they'll be like, why are you laughing? She won't know why. Yeah, how but... do you know? <laughs> no. Oh dear. No. There we go. On that note, yeah, we will uh, we'll <laughs> say goodbye. Time, so yeah, have a good one. Bye. See you then. <laughs>